would like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5, we're looking this morning at verses 31 through 32. If you've been around Old Peach Street very long, you'll know that by and large, my preferred method of preaching is to preach through books of the Bible or passages of Scripture, and uh, doing so has much to commend it. For one thing, over time, you tend to cover biblical truth in biblical proportion, which is important. Uh, It also spares you my riding any favorite hobby horses, for example, Uh, preaching on the wrath of God every Sunday or something like that. Uh, It also has an advantage for me in that it spares me, at least on a week-to-week basis, from agonizing over what it is I need to preach on that Sunday. You simply preach on the passage that comes next. Of course, the bad news is, is that you have to preach on the passage that comes next. And again, the advantage is that it forces the preacher to deal with texts that he might naturally want to shy away from or avoid or put off for another day that never does seem to come. The passage before us today is in some ways a difficult one because, uh, for a couple of reasons, because of the complexity of the subject. There's a lot that you could say about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, uh, and also uh, because of the emotional difficulty of the passage. Obviously, anytime you speak about marriage, uh, you're talking about a large proportion of the congregation, though not everyone. Uh, talk about divorce, you're talking about a significant number of people who either themselves have experienced divorce personally, or their parents have, or brothers or sisters have, or uh, people they love have. And so uh, not only in terms of the scope, the size of, of the discussion, but also in terms of the emotions that it might touch, uh, to speak about marriage, divorce, remarriage, can, uh, can be a difficult thing. Nevertheless, as we have been studying the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, uh, our Lord Jesus uh, addresses this subject, and therefore it is one that we will address this morning as well, uh, not exhaustively, I might say, but I hope uh, insofar as what we cover this morning, certainly biblically and faithfully. So let's look then at Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, teaching them, and he says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let us pray. Father, we do ask for your grace and your help uh, as we study these Two verses this morning, uh, short verses, yet much packed with meaning and implications for our lives. And so, Father, we pray for the the help of your Holy Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Growing up, I had a next-door neighbor, next-door friend, whose parents described him as the original, give him an inch and he'll take a mile, kid. Like my next-door neighbor, you may have heard of the little girl whose activities finally caused her mother to instruct her to sit down. And the child didn't sit down, and the mother said, I told you, sit down. And the little girl refused to sit down, and so the mother made it clear in no uncertain terms the little girl was to sit down, and she finally acquiesced and sat down. And she had a big grin on her face. The mother said, what are you smiling about? And the little girl said, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. Well, unfortunately, fallen sinners that we are, all too often, we, given an inch, we'll take a mile, All too often, we may appear on the outside to be obeying God's word, but we are rebelliously defiant and disobedient on the inside. And as Jesus goes through portions of God's law, the Ten Commandments, he explains to his hearers that so much of what they had been taught about God's law was was true as far as it went, but there was much more to it than that. After all, he has talked about the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Well, I've never killed anyone. I'm okay, right? Jesus says it goes much farther than that because God is concerned not only with your outward behavior. He's concerned with your heart. And so to hate someone, to speak about or look upon someone with this disdainful, hateful contempt in your heart is also to violate that commandment. Now, is it as bad to hate someone in your heart as it is actually to murder them? No, but it is a violation of the sixth command, and we cannot claim innocence where the sixth commandment is concerned if we've done that. Likewise, Jesus goes on to the seventh commandment. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, and that's exactly what the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, says. And Jesus has no disagreement with it. It is, after all, his law. He gave it. But it was the application and understanding of it that he needed to correct because they thought, well, if I've never actually committed adultery with someone, then as far as the seventh commandment's concerned, I'm okay. And Jesus says no, because it's not just the outward action. It's what goes on in the heart that the Lord is concerned about. And so... To lust is to violate the command. Now again, is an attitude or thought of lust in the heart or the mind as bad as an act of adultery? No. Is it a violation of the seventh commandment and therefore an offense against an infinitely holy God and therefore worthy of hell forever? Yes, it is a violation of the law of God and therefore anyone who has ever looked lustfully at a woman or a man in her heart, in his heart, cannot say I'm innocent before God where the seventh commandment is concerned. Now, for both reasons that Jesus was talking about the question of the relationship of men and women uh, and the seventh commandment, and because Jesus is giving the full weight, the full intention, the full application of God's law, he moves then from the seventh commandment to talk about a different but connected matter, that of marriage 
and divorce. And that brings us then to the passage that is here uh, before us. Now, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament here, not this time from the Ten Commandments, but from Deuteronomy chapter 24, passage that we read earlier, a passage that was given by God, a passage that is God's word, that is therefore authoritative. And again, Jesus is not taking exception to what the Old Testament said. He's taking exception to how they took what the Old Testament said and did two things with it. One, they misconstrued it. They made it say something it wasn't saying, and they applied it in a way that allowed them to skirt the spirit of the law. The scribes and Pharisees were experts of the loophole to, at least to themselves, say that they were keeping the letter of the law while doing everything they could to violate the intent, the spirit of the law. Given an inch, they took a mile. And that's exactly what happened with this commandment. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, that's what the passage said. But what was the point of Deuteronomy chapter 1, 1 through 4? Well, it said if, if, if a man divorces his wife, he, he first he must give her a certificate of divorce to, to make this official, to make this public. And then if she goes out and marries another man and he divorces her or he dies or for whatever reason that marriage is ended, then the original husband, husband number one, is prohibited from once again marrying his former wife. Now, why was this legislation given? It was given to bring order out of chaos, marital chaos. It was also given to protect the woman involved. It was given to add weight to a divorce that could take place to make the husband think twice before he did what he did. Now, it's... Two verses here. There's not much here. And we read Matthew 19. There's a lot here, actually, in these two verses. But Jesus said more about divorce than what we just find here. And that's why we read Matthew 19 earlier in our New Testament reading. You may want to keep a finger at Matthew 5. Turn over to Matthew chapter 19. Verse 3. Matthew 19, 3. The Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him, which indicates... They weren't so much seeking information here. They weren't just curious, but they were in a sense trying to pin him down, trying to catch him by asking his thoughts on a a question of the day, a debate that was going on about this whole matter of divorce. In Jesus' day, there were basically two schools of thought. There was one about divorce uh, espoused by Rabbi Shammai, that could be called the the stricter or more conservative view. And that was that a man may divorce his wife only for some grave matrimonial offense found in the marriage or with his wife. Um, The other school was espoused by and, and known as Rabbi Hillel's view, it was the looser view, more liberal view we might say, and perhaps not coincidentally, far more popular 
view. And that was that a man could divorce his wife if there was some thing that he found displeasing about her. Now, it could be that she had committed adultery, and certainly that would qualify, but it could be that she had not prepared his breakfast to his liking. It could be that he decided one morning she was rather plain, and he actually found another woman more attractive. In other words, it could be anything from the weighty insignificant to the trivial and insignificant. And all the man had to do was follow the proper procedure, as long as it was done correctly. A certificate was drawn up, and then the deed was done. Now, that's what they're asking Jesus about in Matthew 19. Jesus, what do you think? Shammai, Hillel, what say you? Well, what does Jesus answer? Verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. What does Jesus do? An important lesson here in his method as well as his words. His method was, let's go back to first principles. They were concerned about Deuteronomy 24. Jesus said, let's go back to Genesis 2. Let's go back to the beginning and not be so obsessed with divorce as to look at marriage. What did God say in the beginning? Well, he created man, male, female. Adam and Eve joined together. The two become one flesh, joined by God in marriage. And what God has joined together, let man not separate. So Jesus takes them back from Deuteronomy to Genesis and says, this was God's design. This is the first principle. This was what God had in mind. Not to rack our brains how we can get out, of a divorce, get out of a marriage with a divorce, but to go back and say, what was marriage meant to be? One, marriage was God's design. Two, when a man and woman are married, they're joined together by God. And three, marriage is to be a permanent arrangement. Okay, Jesus. Why then did Moses say, did Moses command, let him give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. Huh? Jesus was, appeared to outmaneuver them, but they were not so easily to be put off. They said, okay, well, Moses said this. Why did Moses say that? Look at what Jesus says in verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Jesus acknowledges the law was there. That was given. It was given by God. Why? Not because it was God's intent and design, but as a concession. They saw it as a command. Jesus says it was a concession to a fallen, sinful human heart, to the hardness of your heart. And in fact, if you think about it, much of God's law is designed to regulate sin, to deal with sin. It wasn't a command. It was a concession to a fallen humanity to allow to recognize that because of hardness of heart, because of sin, because this principle of sin at work in hearts and a marriage, that a marriage would end. A divorce would take place. And the Lord regulated it by providing public record 
and prohibiting random divorce, remarriage, divorce, remarriage. If she marries someone else, you can't remarry her to, to bring, again, order out of chaos. And then Jesus goes on to say, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Why? Because she should be married to the first man. Because he should be married to his first wife. Because if they just divorce because she burned the toast and remarry others by marrying someone other than that person to whom they should be married, they are committing Adultery, and that really was where it ties back into what Jesus had just been talking about in the verses we looked at last week. So we'll look at that again in just a minute, but I just want to emphasize here the point, this reductionistic thinking. They took what Moses had said in the first place, that the certificate was almost secondary. The point was to prohibit the husband from remarrying his first wife after she'd married someone else, and they made that the main thing. And then they took it as God's mandating, God's encouraging divorce. And Jesus says that was not the point. The point was that was a concession to the hard, fallen sinfulness of human hearts. Dear friends, in the day in which we live, in which I think you would agree that marriage as such has fallen on hard times, whether it's those who are attacking it in the courts and legislatures or those who are diminishing it through, shall we say, relatively trivial divorce and and sequential divorce, uh, it's under attack. It's in a hard way in our day. However... Our day is not unique. Human hearts have not gone sour in the last 50 years. They've been that way for a long time. And the situation in Jesus' day uh, was not all that different. Trivial divorces occurred. Uh, And Jesus was pointing out that, yes, while God's law spoke to it, it was not as encouragement but as a concession. And we need to recognize that. And we need to get away from the question What are the grounds for divorce? How can I get divorced? To going back to saying, what did God intend and design and purpose marriage to be? That's what Jesus did. We need to go back to the first principles and think this through, not in terms of how can I get out of it, but how can I make it all that God intended it to be? You see, we reflect that, not just here, but in other aspects. You know, what's the most I have to do? What's the least I can get away with? Rather than saying, how can I obey God in this area uh, with all of my being, with my whole heart, whether it's this command or any other. And our sinfulness, we do look for the loophole. We do look for what we can get away with. But by God's grace, we need to change our thinking to say, how can I obey? How can I honor? How can I glorify God by obeying him in this commandment or this commandment or in my marriage? Well, let's look then at what Jesus says here uh, in verse 32. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, if you look at different passages here, uh, Matthew 19:9, where Jesus already spoke of adultery flowing from a divorce. 
Um, we won't look at them for time, but a couple of other references: Luke, uh, or I'm sorry, Mark 10, 11 and 12, and Luke 16, verse 18. You will find that Jesus covers pretty much any angle: the one being divorced, the one divorcing, someone marrying the one being divorced, someone marrying the one who divorced. Um, that when a marriage is ends in divorce, and those parties should be married to each other, for them to marry another is an act of adultery because they should be married to their first spouse. Now, the big question here is the exception clause. Except on the ground of sexual immorality. Now, Jesus acknowledges that there is a condition in which a husband, Christian husband or wife, has the right, though not the obligation, to divorce his wife, to divorce her husband. And that is in the case of uh, the term Jesus uses here in Greek is porneia. Uh, The ESV, I think other modern translations, render it sexual immorality, some form of physical sexual uncleanness. Typically, we might think in terms of adultery, but it isn't necessarily limited to that, uh, some form of physical sexual contact in some way, that once taken place gives that Christian wife or Christian husband, again, the option, but not the requirement to pursue a divorce. Now, in those cases, we would assume that if the husband or the, spouse or the wife pursues a divorce, is divorced, that they would then be free to remarry another because the divorce came under that exception clause. Does the, an act of adultery, for instance, end the marriage? Does it mean they're no longer married in God's sight? Absolutely not. Any more than some act of premarital fornication creates a marriage. They are married. They're still married. Otherwise, why would God say they could pursue a divorce? However, they also have the right not to pursue a divorce. The aggrieved spouse has the right to seek reconciliation, repentance, the healing, restoration of the marriage, which I would say in many cases may be ultimately the better course of action. However, in those cases, the husband or wife does have the right to pursue a divorce, and I would deduce from what Jesus says, than to be remarried. Now, if you know your Old Te- or your New Testament, you may know that there is another ground given for divorce in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, really outside the bounds of our sermon today, and that is, uh, Paul says, if, a, if an unbelieving spouse goes, let him go. The believer is not bound in those circumstances. And they say, well, what if it's a professing Christian who leaves, who walks out, apparently is not coming back, uh, or has filed for divorce, effectively deserting the marriage? Uh, but they're a professing believer, not an unbeliever. Well, I, I would say, I think, following the process of Matthew 18, they would be addressed, confronted, uh, approached by the church. And if ultimately there is a failure to repent and to turn away from that sinful course of action, that eventually they would find themselves excommunicated by the church, which is the church's statement that because of the person's impenitence, we find them to be acting like an unbeliever, therefore as far as the church is concerned, they are one, then the unbeliever 
has left, deserted the marriage, and the believing spouse is not bound there but has the right to a divorce and to be remarried. Uh, that, again, is really outside the bounds of our text. Uh, but Jesus is speaking here of, of sexual immorality, some form of sexual sin that would, in fact, be a grounds for divorce. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Well, again, he, no more than Deuteronomy 24, uh, he is not encouraging divorce. He is acknowledging the reality of sin, the reality of this broken world, the reality of the hardness of human hearts, and the necessity of regulating what is sinful, of regulating what is less than ideal, of regulating what is, what is less than God's original design. This world is not the way God made it. Adam and Eve fell. Sin is real. It's real in our hearts. It's real in the world. It's real in our society. It's real in our marriages. It's real in our families. And God is the ultimate realist. And so he's made provision there. But dear friends, we dare not take the inch God has given and run with it for a mile. We don't look for the loophole. We don't wake up one day and decide that our wife isn't what we might wish her to be or our husband isn't what we might wish him to be and begin thinking, how can I get out of this? We wake up and we say, Lord God, thank you for this husband. Thank you for this wife you've given me. Help me to love him. Help me to love her. Help me to be the husband. Help me to be the wife that you would have me to be. And so honor and glorify you. By the way, verse 32b, the second part of the verse, may apply to you. You, it may be as you look at what's going on here, you think, you know, by this verse, I should not have married that person. I should, have, should not have been remarried. Does that mean that my whole marriage now is one big act of adultery? No. It does mean, in those cases, that the persons originally married should be married to each other. However, if one of them remarries, then the reconciliation that might have been desirable is no longer possible. And in any case, you are now married to the person you're married to. The thing to do as a believer now is to come before Christ and as with any sin, confess it, to acknowledge it, to seek God's forgiveness, the cleansing of Christ's blood, and to live for his glory in the marriage in which you now find yourself. And if need be, be reconciled and make things right with other people as the case uh, may require but then to glorify God in the marriage in which you now find yourself. Because that's where you are. We obey God where we are. We serve him in our current circumstances. The past is what it is. We can't undo it. Sin is what it is. We simply go to the cross. We confess our sins as we do any other sins. And thank God for the provision of his cleansing, forgiveness, pardon, his grace in Christ Jesus. But what we don't want to do is look for the loophole. What we don't want to do is look for an inch we can find in God's law and take it for a mile. What we don't want to do is sit on the outside but defiantly stand on the inside. You see, even as Christians, we can fall into that kind of thinking. What can I get away with? What's the least I have to do? That's an ungodly way of thinking. We need to repent of it. 
You see, the scribes and the Pharisees thought that way. They were minimalists. They were reductionists. And Jesus said, no. It's not what you can get away with. It's not what loopholes can you find in God's law. The question is, how can I, in my current circumstances, obey, honor, and glorify God to the best of my ability, with His grace and with His help? You know, the question is not, what do I have to do to get a good divorce? The question is, how can I glorify God in my marriage? Marriage isn't perfect. No marriage is. We're sinners. Sinners can be united in marriage. Saved by grace, but still that residue of sin. We need to repent to the Lord. We need to repent to our husband. We need to repent to our wife, probably on a daily basis. Heard love means never having to say you're sorry. Nothing could be further from the truth. Love means every day to your husband or wife saying, I'm sorry. I have sinned against you. Please forgive me. And may God forgive me. Because you see, when you have two people who recognize that they are sinners, who see themselves, each, the husband himself, the wife herself, as the chief of sinners, and therefore willing to humble himself, willing to humble herself before the Lord and before the spouse, then you start to have the potential for a good, God-glorifying, satisfying marriage. The question is not, how can I get divorced? The question is, how can I glorify God and enjoy Him forever in my marriage? Let's pray. Lord, we are your people and we want to live as your people, but we have to confess our sin so often gets in the way. Our pride, our selfishness, our laziness, our perverse desire to find the loophole and escape obeying you. Lord God, forgive us. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you, Lord, for your long-suffering with all of our flaws and foibles and quirks. Lord, you are so good. You are so faithful. You're so patient. Lord, make us that way with one another, with our husbands, with our wives. Lord Jesus, we don't want to be those who are looking for the way out. We want to be those who are looking for how to glorify you, looking for the way in. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we would go back from Deuteronomy to Genesis and glorify you in our marriage. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.